G'day, I'm Morgan Evans, and welcome to Selkirk OnServe, a pickleball podcast presented by Selkirk Sport. With interviews and insights, news and announcements, we're here to take the pulse of pickleball. Today's guest has a very interesting tale. He's a real renaissance man. He's done a lot in his life. He's committed to supporting the growth of pickleball both domestically and around the globe. His father survived the Holocaust and instilled upon him an incredible work ethic for success. He earned a college scholarship. He became a world-class gymnast. He's been an accomplished business executive and a best-selling author. Most importantly for us, he introduced the International Pickleball Teaching Professional Association, the IPTPA. It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Seymour Rifkin. Good morning, or actually good afternoon, I guess. Uh, it's more appropriate, Morgan. How are you today? I'm well, mate. It sounds like you've had a long day. You're in uh, Oklahoma, is that correct? I'm in Oklahoma, yes. Uh, doing my typical gig here, crossing the country and doing workshops and occasionally, and uh, it's it, Really, the term occasionally has popped up a lot more this year, uh, trying to play. I, I used to average 20, 25 tournaments a year. Uh, I think this will be my third tournament. So uh, not, not getting to play as much as I'd like to, but hoping that uh, you know I'm trying to make some kind of impact on our, on our game. Well, that's important. It's good <laughs> fun. Um, yeah. Okay. So, Riff, tell me a little bit about your story. You were the son of a Holocaust survivor. Uh, you became a world-class gymnast. Um, professional businessman in in many senses, and you're a best-selling author. Um, and recently, obviously, you've introduced the the IPTPA to the world, um, the first ever coaching certification body. Give us a little bit of a rundown of of just how it all happened. Well, you, you've thrown a lot of stuff my way, <laughs> starting from uh, how I grew up. Uh, as, as the son of a Holocaust survivor, uh, all the way through uh, a business career of, of, of 35 years and, and a little bit of, about uh, my, my first love in sports, which was gymnastics. So um, my father, being a Holocaust uh, survivor, had a huge impact on my life. Um, there's books that have been written, not just about uh, Holocaust survivors, but the children of Holocaust survivors. And Many of the traits that I possess are very common to other children of the Holocaust survivors. Typically, a Holocaust survivor will act in one of two ways. Many of them repress all memories from the Holocaust, Holocaust because it was such a uh, dramatic, uh, painful experience. Uh, others uh, want to share their experiences, and so they talk about them regularly, especially with loved ones and with family. My father uh, was from the latter. He shared his experiences almost daily, uh, telling stories, uh, expressing, you know, what if scenarios, how life can change on a dime, Mm. uh, all of those types of things. And so growing up, I heard extremely painful stories that uh, brought tears to my eyes many a day. Mm. But at the same time, uh, provided me with a different outlook than many children have about life in general and really our position as animals uh, and, and what man can do to each other. Mm. Uh, so there's that one side of man, which is, uh, I guess, brutal, 
And then there's the other side of man, which is so loving and caring. And, and my father was somebody who never really kept um, hatred in. Uh, he forgave those that, that uh, hurt him. And he lost his entire family in the war. Uh, his, he was separated from his uh, mother and father uh, early on. They were in ghettos together. And, and then uh, the boy, he had two other brothers, uh, and he went to concentration camps. Uh, his older brother uh, worked in the underground, uh, in the ghetto, unbeknownst to even uh, he and his younger brother. Uh, he died in the concentration camps. He got uh, sick. Uh, and, and during the concentration camps, those who were sick went to uh, an infirmary for a day or two. If you didn't recover, they took you to the ovens. And, and that's yeah. what happened to his older brother. He was, he was actually burned alive. Wow. Uh, the, younger son, the younger brother survived the war. And literally a couple of days after they traveled across the Alps, uh, my father and, and his brother, uh, he ended up with uh, an appendix uh, attack and, and uh, he died. So, so he survived the war and, and, then, and then passed. Oh, that's tragic. Um, so there's a lot of sad stories um, that, that I learned growing up, but it taught me how fragile life really is uh, and what it took to survive. And the importance of being uh, persistent and, and wanting to survive and doing whatever it took to survive. And so that was kind of embedded me uh, early on. That was my takeaway, I suppose you might say. Mm. And I've taken that hard work ethic and persistence and never give up attitude uh, into everything I've ever done in my life. Uh, so that was a, a huge benefit uh, for me. Uh, the other thing that's very common among many uh, children of survivors is that you want to do everything you can to bring happiness to your loved ones that uh, suffered so much throughout their life going through that horrible experiences that, that my father went through. So a great deal of motivation for me to be successful in, in everything I did was the additional pride and joy that it brought my father, um, and in many ways, it was my way of saying that you survived to have children, and you know now you're witnessing some of the joys that you know you were deprived of in, in much of your life. So it's a strange dichotomy of of, yeah. of how you kind of view life um, in, in many respects, and and I experienced a lot of that you know, uh, at a very young age and throughout my life. And I lost my dad about four or five years ago. He always was a huge supporter of everything I did, and we always had a, a terrific and a great relationship. So he, he was really a uh, – he, he wasn't one to really teach lessons, but his stories were the lessons. Mm -hmm. So it, it, he wasn't really a teacher, but uh, I, I, I grabbed a lot of lessons just through the stories that I, I, I heard throughout my life. And it does bring me on to um, a, next, a next question. You've written a book um, not too long ago called 21st Century Samurai, The Secret Path to Success and Fulfillment. Um, now, at some point, I, I am going to learn how to read, and, and when I do, what kind of lessons am I going to learn from your book? So the book is characterized as a self-help book. And um, when I retired in 2005, I traveled around quite a bit um, doing 
workshops and speeches with C-suite executives, and and then I kind of changed it direction and and followed what my true love has always been, which has been sports. And so I worked with a lot of uh, different sports, from gymnastics uh, to triathletes to basketball players, to football players, track and field, uh, and I did talks all over the place. And I recognized that one of the ways to get your brand established was you needed a book. Uh, and I was never a writer. I still don't consider myself a writer. And so I recognized that if I wanted to go on the circuit and be successful, I needed a business card. And for those that are successful at doing that, a business card is really a book. Mm. So I wrote a book in about six months. I self-published it. Um, and the book is really about the lessons that I've learned in my life. It's a value-based book. Uh, and I call it 21st Century Samurai simply because the book came out right when the movie came out. 21st, uh, or The Last Samurai, yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, Tom Cruise. And timing is everything in, in business and in marketing. Yeah. And being that I uh, owned an advertising and marketing firm, I used those type of business skills to my advantage. So uh, the book got a lot of notoriety, and even though it was self-published, it was the only book uh, that Barnes & Noble and all the major uh, bookstores picked up that wasn't published by a major New York um, wow. publishing house. Now, interestingly enough, um, I did submit my book to a number of the large New York publishers, and three of them wanted to publish it. Um, but all three of them said the same thing. They said, we are really intrigued with your book, but you're, you've got one chapter in it that makes no sense. It has nothing to do with everything else that's in the book. And that's the book on your father. Mm-hmm. So if you take that chapter out, we'll publish your book. I said, well, that chapter means everything to me. And their answer was, well, it may mean everything to you, but we're interested in selling books. And you've got a great message in there uh, based on a lot of your life experiences and why uh, you know they work to help support some of the values that you bring up uh, in the book. And so the book basically talks about a, a number of different things that I think you need to have in order to be successful in, not, in life. Most it's, people think uh, of success, they think of monetary success. And, you know, monetary success is important. Uh, it, it is a nice thing, but it, 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 it pales in comparison to happiness. And so um, I, I, I've, been able to be on both sides. I've been a successful businessman. I've retired early in my life. And I can tell you that I rub shoulders with lots of very, very wealthy uh, men that were very, very unhappy that no matter how much money they had, it was never enough. And, uh, you know, so the book really talks a little bit about uh, what it takes to be happy and successful in life. And, you know, if you're running into problems, there's exercises that you could do to help uh, improve yourself to, to kind of get uh, yourself uh, out of the predicament that you're in. Um, and so it, it was translated into about uh, 
a dozen different languages. It did get picked up by a number of publishers all over the world. You know, I did a little bit of research before uh, before talking with you today, and uh, had a look at some of the some of the great reviews on the on the book uh, on Amazon, and. And one of the big things that stood out was how much people uh, liked that section of the book. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to me how the uh, the big publishing companies uh, wanted that to come out. Um, you know that that human interest part of the right. the story uh, for me is something that is going to have a much easier time grabbing the attention of your average reader. So um, you know, I'm glad you you went your well, own way you know, and, and kept it um, kept it in there. Part they're always right <laughs> <laughs> exactly and you know what you're saying about you know, success and happiness yeah that's uh, it's interesting what you mentioned about um, how you how you've met a lot of wealthy individuals um, and their uh, their views on success and happiness versus yours and I've always found that the two generally are often confused um, and the happiest uh, the most successful people are typically the ones that um, look at happiness as a as a journey, not a not a destination, um, right. and that and that don't have uh, the almighty dollar as their their be all and end all goal. Because you know, essentially, if if, if that's the name of the game for you, then you're just going to be kicking the can down the street continually. If I buy a Ferrari today, you know, in a week, I'm going to want a better Ferrari. So on yeah. and so forth, um, and it never ends. Versus, you know, seeking fulfillment in your everyday life, in doing the kinds of things that you're doing well, serving your community and uh, the sport you love. So, what what led you to create the IPTPA? Um, you know, and when you when you founded the IPTPA, what was your vision? So, um, why I started IPTPA was really, uh, I'm not going to say easy, but I recognize that, you know, it, it, it's amazing to see how far the game has come in just, you know, three and a half, four years. Uh, I, I got introduced to the game four years ago. I fell in love with it. And, of course, like so many uh, uh, others, uh, I, I was exposed to it uh, in the villages in Florida. I came back home, and I immediately wanted to find out where I could play. And uh, there were a couple of park districts, but uh, nobody really understood the game. And when I asked, well, where do you go to take lessons? Or, you know, what are the basic fundamentals? Why do you do this? Why, why is everybody driving the ball? You know, uh, nobody really had an answer, or everybody had an answer, but there were so many different answers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I reached out to the USAPA initially and, and said, have you guys ever thought about a teaching curriculum? Uh, and their answer was, no, it wasn't really necessary. Uh, they didn't see a need for it. And fortunately, because of my background in sports, and, and uh, I coached for a number of years, both high school, college, and a number of you know national All-Americans and, and Olympians, I was able to have a, 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 a greater perspective of what pickleball could be. Uh, in my mind, for 50 years, it was really a backyard game that had exploded over the last maybe five, six years prior to me getting involved uh, among the seniors because it was fun and it was all inclusive and it was men and women could both play and children could play and seniors could play. I mean, it was a game for everyone. And I saw 
so much more of an opportunity for this to really grow into one of my dreams is to have it be an Olympic sport. But in order for that to ha- happen, in order to even be considered, in order to even any, have anybody, you know, take a look at, at pickleball and, and uh, take it seriously, you at least had to have an agreement of what the basic fundamentals of the game are. And that none, none of that existed. And so uh, I reached out to a lot of the top players uh, in the world at that time. And um, in 2015 at Nationals, we had a meeting with about, uh, I think, 15 uh, of the top players. All of them had won multiple national titles. There wasn't a U.S. Open at that time. And I laid out a plan for, you know, five years of what I thought pickleball needed. And it started with having at least agreed upon understanding by the top players in the world, what are the fundamentals of this game? How do you improve? Why Why do you need a third shot drop? Why ding? And in quick order, 100% of the people agreed with, you know, what I wanted to do. And more importantly, they were all willing to sit down and, and identify what the basic fundamentals of pickleball are. And that really surprised me, not so much that they were willing to do it, but how quickly everybody agreed to it. Because I remember vividly, there were people there that played a lot differently than many of the other people that were there. There were people that were just banging the ball. There were people that were doing nothing but third shot drop. But every single one of them immediately agreed to, these are all the basic fundamentals that you need in order to be successful at pickleball. And once you can accomplish all those, then you can add more tools to the tool belt. You could add additional skills, but you need these. And so, you know, that became the, the basic foundation of what uh, we established at IPTPA. And it was the start of taking, like I said, a backyard game and trying to legitimatize it to be viewed as a real professional sport. Um, you need a teaching organization. You need a teaching organization that has uh, a certification program from, you know, the grassroots children all the way up to the professional level. Well, IPTPA isn't there yet, but that's kind of the, the process that yeah. we're going through. And if I would have done it the right way, and I know what the right way is, uh, IPTPA still wouldn't be in existence because it takes three, four years in order to develop a full curriculum that's robust enough to be able to work with grassroots beginners, adults, and children all the way up to the pros. But as you know, Morgan, uh, being, you know, on board very early on, we started out with just one type of certification, yeah. uh, which now is called level two. But we have introduced over the past year level one, which is for the beginners, and, and uh, a level three, which will be introduced next year, which will, will take us up to, to the pros. And so um, that becomes one of the anchors to being considered a, a, a true professional or acceptable sport in almost every country. So um, the impetus to develop the IPTPA was to try to fulfill at least one of the requirements that most countries' governing bodies of sport require. They want to see a high participation in that sport. They want to see a coaching certification program. They want to see a uh, sports governing body. And when you have all three of those things, 
then there's an opportunity for that sports governing body within the country to accept it as a sport. Yeah. And so, you know, now, you know, with IPTPA uh, being a, a, a good anchor and, and, and being very well accepted and respected here in the United States, uh, we started to branch outside of the country simply to help other countries to have a coaching certification program, uh, help them to develop a federation so that they can meet the qualifications of those countries so that pickleball could be accepted. We need to have 75 countries to 75. be recognized wow. in order to even be, to take step one to the Olympics. Uh, so, so this is a long marathon. So where are we at now? How many, how many countries have we got at the moment? Well, if you look at the IFP website, I think they probably have eight or nine listed, but I know for a fact that a bunch of those are inaccurate. For instance, they've got two federations in England, both of which have, in Great Britain, both of which are gone. You know, oh. they, they fell apart. Uh, mm. They've got clubs listed that, that are not, you know, sports governing bodies. So, you know, the IFP, I don't think, has a clue of what's necessary in order to get to be an Olympic sport. Mm. Um, and if they do, they're certainly not doing much in order to get us there. Um, and, and that really is the only governing body, uh, to my knowledge, at this point, anyway. So uh, that, just, that would lead in, in, in an initiative uh, uh, of that sort. So in a previous uh, previous episode, I was talking with uh, Rob and Mike Barnes, and they brought up the fact that um, when a host nation, um, uh, sorry, a host nation of the Olympics is allowed to introduce a sport as an exhibition event, is that right. something whereby you know, say we introduce pickleballs exhibition event, um, can that kind of circumvent the normal red tape involved in in trying to get it's not the, necessarily the, sport? the red tape. There's certain procedures that the IOC has that it's not really red tape. These are just the rules of of the IOC. And the IOC is the governing body of, of, of you know, most international events. Um, so, uh, yes, you can become uh, an exhibition sport, but it's not that easy to become an, an, an exhibition sport either. You need to have a tremendous amount of support and you need to be able to show uh, the, uh, uh, the validity of, of the sport. And that's usually, you know, with numbers. Now, you know, here in the U.S., uh, pickleball is, is considered one of the fastest growing sports uh, in the United States. Um, in other countries, you know, not not so much. You know, it's new. I mean, mm. you know, um, when I when I visited mom, I was in Australia, but you know, I visited about a dozen countries, uh, introducing uh, pickleball in some, uh, trying to get uh, teacher certification in 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 all the others, so that that individual country would have a better idea of what the proper fundamentals of the game are, get proper instruction uh, with a standardized view so they would be able to avoid some of the bad habits that, you know, so many of us in the U.S. have simply because there was no guidance. You know, everybody just enjoyed the game, went out and had fun, and, um, you know, in order to improve, um, you need to be able to have some guidance. But look, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the only way or the that's what everybody should be doing. I thoroughly understand and recognize and support 
the fact that probably 80% of the people that are out there playing pickleball play pickleball because they love the game, um, for the social aspect of it, because we all, I think, can agree that the pickleball uh, family is, is an incredible group of players, uh, and, and most people's entire social circle has expanded and in some cases changed dramatically to just pickleball people. Yeah. We all are addicted to the game, right? Yeah. And we're addicted to uh, the people that are, are part of it because we all share uh, a special love for this game. Um, and there are going to be the vast majority of people that are not interested in, in competition uh, of, of that sort. But if there's 10 or 15 percent that really want to improve and that their dream is to compete at the national level and an international level, then we need to have certain guidelines and we need to have organizations that are doing everything possible to provide those types of opportunities. And IPTPA is just, like I said, one you know part of the puzzle. Mm. And uh, the more countries that we can get that have a certification program, There'll be some that are trying that try to do develop their you know their own. That's fine. You know, I, I'm not trying to get, gain a monopoly. Uh, we were the first. Yeah. And uh, you know, we, we were the first, and and, and I think that if our principles are sound. Um, they're not my principles. They're principles of, of the top players in the world. And um, you know, most sports um, are comprised of of, of the leadership is made up of the people that know the game and understand the tendencies of the game and, and, and where the uh, game is going to be potentially changing as we move ahead. And, you know, IPTPA is an organization that thoroughly understands that. Um, we feel that, you know, we've got an open ear of communication. We're constantly reaching out to our membership for uh, advice and for improvement. So, you know, we, we're, we're only two and a half years old and, and uh, you know, we've made tremendous strides. Uh, but, you know, one of my goals is to create the best teaching organization in the world, bar none. You know, so I, I want us to get into the Olympics, but I want IPTPA to be highly respected as the teaching organization. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want, you know, most people think that golf is, it, it has a great... Uh, uh, teaching organization that they do a tremendous job working with their pros and, and working with juniors all the way up. Well, I want that same type of respect, um, and, and uh, excellence and, and standard of, of excellence, uh, with IPTPA in the pickleball community worldwide. And I, I gladly, gladly, uh, uh, accept and, 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 and relish competition. And I'm happy that the PPR came in. Uh, the PPR, you know, coming out of tennis, uh, has raised the, the stakes, has, has provided additional publicity to the tennis community, and um, it allows uh, us to be compared to another organization. And I love competition. That keeps me sharp, keeps our, our members sharp, and uh, I think it'll be good for pickleball. And, you know, all I ever say is, People that are interested in getting certified in, in, in anything should do their research. Yeah. You know, they, they should seek out uh, and talk to people that have been coached by IPTPA teaching professionals or PPR teaching professionals. Take a look at the curriculums that are provided. Take a look at the people that, that are out there teaching. Um, and, you know, from that, 
base your decision on what you think is, is going to fit your needs the best. And, you know, I'm happy to compete against PPR or any other organization that comes along. Because I guarantee you, our organization is made up of the top players in the world. It is a pickleball-only organization. Our organization is not for profit. Our organization, all the revenue is put back into helping develop new programs to spread the word of pickleball across the world and to help with our ultimate objective of being the best teaching organization in the world while trying to get us into the Olympics. So, so anybody that comes in and competes, I can tell you this, be ready to compete. <laughs> there's a, there's a good words. Um, so tell me, I haven't looked up uh, everything involved in the certification process for the PPR. Do you know, can, off the top of your head, roughly how does it differ um, compared to the IPTPA? Oh, yeah. Well, it's significantly different. I mean, we've had five or six IPTPA uh, members that have gone to the uh, PPR. Um, and, uh, look, I'm not here to, to, to be negative, so I don't want, want, want that to come across. But I think what PPR would even admit is that basically they took their tennis curriculum, changed some wording here and there, uh, and took the tennis curriculum, and that became the uh, pickleball curriculum. Um, it's, Interesting. it's a different sport. And, you know, they, they are, from all of, of the appearances, they are judging how you play as opposed to how you teach. Our program is based on trying to create the best teachers. Theirs appears to be identifying how good of a player you are, and that determines uh, how good of a, a, a teacher you are. Um, I don't. I don't see much of a uh, comparison between our two um, views on our curriculum or how we're going about uh, de- developing our organization. I, I've been. I, I. I can tell you this through personal experiences. I've worked with, you know, Olympic champions. Uh, I've worked with good athletes. And it's been, always been my experience that the best coaches are rarely the very best players. They are good players, but they weren't the most naturally gifted. And as a result, they've had to study their craft as a player. They've had to study and do film analysis. and they dedicated their teaching in much the same way they dedicated their playing. That's why they became great coaches. And I don't care what field you're talking about, whether it was tennis, pickleball, gymnastics, uh, swimming, track and field, football, basketball, you name it. Um, Those that are simply think that if you're a great player, you're automatically a great teacher is missing the boat. Yeah. Because there are many great players that are poor coaches, and there are many good players that are phenomenal coaches. It's a totally different set of skills. I agree. The potential is there if you're a really good player because you've experienced a lot. And you understand some of the perhaps uh, idiosyncrasies that a lower level player wouldn't experience. And from that experience, it, it gives you the opportunity to be a better coach. But just to think that it automatically transfers over that you'd be dead wrong. Mm. So we are interested in creating the greatest teachers. 
And that's one of the reasons why we created a Teach the Teachers workshop. We developed an IPTPA teaching methodology. We spent, we, we wrote a 65-page manual providing lesson plans, talking about how to teach. You know, being a teacher is a profession. There are people that go to school and college for four years for their bachelor's and another couple years for a master's, and some go further than that for a doctorate. So to think that because you can play the game, you're an effective communicator, you understand the psychology of sport, you understand how to organize team play, you organize, you understand the importance of the amount, how to break down skills, um, yeah. that would be presumptuous. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, I was living in Spain around eight or nine years ago, and I, I taught a woman... Um, I was a tennis coach at that time, and I told a woman she was a, a teacher, and she explained to me um, something called the conscious competence model. Have you have you ever heard of the the conscious competence model? I've heard just the term. I'm not familiar yeah. with it though. It, well, it applies it applies to exactly what you're saying, um, and the the gist of it kind of goes like this. So imagine if I have never played pickleball before in my life, I am. Uh, unconsciously incompetent. I, I don't know that I'm terrible at pickleball. And then I play for the first time and I realize, oh, uh, I'm really not very good at this. I, I kind of suck. Um, and that at that stage, now I'm consciously incompetent. And so I decide, all right, well, I'd like to get better at this game. I start practicing and practicing and gradually I'll move to the, the next stage where I'm consciously competent. I know that I'm quite good at pickleball. Um, and at the nth degree of the scale, uh, someone like Roger Federer in tennis, um, gets so good that you become unconsciously competent. So it's, yeah. it's almost impossible for you to actually, um, describe and explain exactly how you do what you what you do, because it's, it's in your unconscious mind. Um, and yeah. for that reason, you know, I find it, it, it's often so, so much easier for, a perhaps a three five or a four zero level player to teach a complete beginner because it's much more fresh in their mind. Obviously, they need to be good communicators, um, well organized, um, and have a you know a good foundation um, of how to play the game. You know, at a kind of a high percentage way. Um, but that kind of person is is often going to have a much easier time connecting with with the players than someone who perhaps um, was a very naturally skilled um, player and never had to go through the the difficulties um, of the 2530 level. Um, right. Which I think you, you're kind of touching on there and, and it's a very important point. And I hear so many so many people saying that you, you, you can't be teaching people unless you're at least a 4-5 and 5-0 player. Um, and now with a new rating system up to kind of 6-0, and, and I just feel that's that, that's not a, a fair statement, um, depending on who you're trying to teach. Correct. Um, yeah, I, I I agree with that wholeheartedly. Excellent. Look, Riff, it's been uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show, mate. I think we've touched on a huge amount of things. I uh, hope our listeners have in, enjoyed it as much as I have. That's it for this episode of Selkirk OnServe. 
I know you're sad, but don't worry, it's okay. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, helping you keep a pulse on pickleball.